on our earth before writing was invented, before the printing press was invented, poetry flourished. That's why we know that poetry is like bread. It should be shared by all, by scholars and by peasants, by all our vast, incredible, extraordinary family of humanity. That was Pablo Neruda. I'm Bob Holman, and this is the Poetry is Bread podcast, where poetry challenges us, makes us think, and with imagination and courage, changes the world. Well, he walked into the New Eurekan Poets Cafe and accosted me. Mr. Holman, I'm Bo Sia. I'm from Oklahoma, and I saw the poets on MTV, and I'm the next Maggie Estep. Son, I said, why don't you go and write some poems? Oh, but I have, he replied, thrusting a Xeroxed book into my hands, titled, Frank O'Hara Goes to Hawaii. I knew I was in trouble. Bo has been getting me and his ardent readers into trouble ever since. He is that raucous, deadpan, outrageous, sincere, hilarious, fire-spitting poet making the case for being the only Asian at the party when the party is appearing on all six seasons of Deaf Poetry Jam, winning a Tony for the Broadway version, starting a new career as a sensitive folk singer, starring in a traveling poetry performance with Norman Lear's copy of the Declaration of Independence, appearing in Slam, the movie, now celebrating its 25th year, appearing in Jonathan Demme's Manchurian Candidate and Maggie's Wedding, appearing on Broadway with Deaf Poetry Jam, creating a knife-based martial art, writing a terrific web series of healing poems, and whose incredible drawings have amazed and bewildered us over the years. In other words, and he always used the other words, Bosia is a poet in Let Me Count the Ways. You can't. His Attack, Attack, Go album, A Mouth Almighty, his books, A Night Without Armor 2, The Revenge, Satirizing Jewels, best-selling book of poems, released with that CD from Mouth Almighty Mercury, Attack, Attack, Go, author of The Undisputed Greatest Writer of All Time, from Right Bloody, and uh, from Not a Cult, just out, well played, which is what we'll be talking a lot about today, and it's an explosive collection of poems, as radical as they come, but still with the sly wit. Oh man, this goes on, Bo. Outrageous humor <laughs> and volcanic hyperbole, I guess I'm taking on your style, that has come to define a Bo Sia poem. Here he is, folks. Hey. Bo Sia poet. Welcome to Poetry is Bread. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. Thank you so much for the warm and amazing introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I felt like I was going on the journey with you back to the time you first met me, and thank you for taking me through that little uh, mini-arc. It's great to be here. Thank you for welcoming me to this. Oh, well, let's talk about that mini-arc. Um, sure. Was, uh, what was the poem that got you started to be... Uh... To, to be a poet and to uh, accost me, as it said in the intro. Sure. I think, uh, you know, I, I thought about this question a little bit, hearing you talk about it just now. And, and you're right. When I when I ran up to you at the Nuyo, it was like I had just seen y'all on MTV Unplugged, Spoken Word Unplugged, and I had just seen the uh, 
the clips MTV ran of Reggie, uh, Maggie, and others, right? And so in that moment, the the poet that you first experienced me as, you know, really came out of being inspired by their work, by a loud voices from the New York Poets Cafe, the the anthology that you and uh, Miguel edited, and then as well as the MTV special. But I think when it comes to like the first poem, like the poem that got me going, oh, I want to write poems, was probably like something in Cyrano de Bergerac, because I was 15 when I decided I wanted to be a poet. And in reading that book, I sort of experienced this idea in a narrative, the power of poetry to move hearts in people that you love and are drawn to. And I was so... Mm. uh so lovesick, so to speak, back then, that it drove me as a vehicle and an outlet for my feelings, my emotions, you know. Wow. Great, 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 great poem itself there, Bo. Um, so let's take you back then. You're 15, Chinese-American. Is it okay for me to say, how do you like to say that? You know, that's an interesting thing, right? Because as my uh, relationship with my identity evolves, uh, you know, there's that sort of eras of courage and how you express yourself and share who you are. Um, at this phase, you know, it's important for me to recognize culturally that my parents were born and raised in the Philippines. So I tend to, uh, you know, talk about myself as the son of Chinese immigrants from the Philippines, you know. Simple enough. Actually, it's complicated, and there's no reason why the language can't be complicated also. It's not so much Humans complicated, are more it's dynamic just longer. Than capitalism allows us to be. Okay, folks, that's not <laughs> copyrighted. You can go use it yourself for free. But where are we? We're in Oklahoma City with uh, your Chinese parents who immigrated from the Philippines. And uh, you're on the swim team there. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what's it like? Um, can, you, can you tell us about growing up there? Sure. I think, uh, obviously, I always say this is pre-internet Oklahoma. So when you talk about, uh, when one talks about feeling alone out there, it really was uh, of lack of examples of who I am, uh, people that look like me, the culture that I come from as well as sort of a culture that, uh, you know, the cost of belonging is to give up some of who you are, it feels like, often in America, and that was the case in Oklahoma. So for myself, I had a very, um, my contrarian personality was triggered by the fact that everything I believed I was didn't seem to have a place in the land I was raised in. And that kind of conflict was a very uh, potent potent energy for my early poems and throughout my life, to be honest. Well, do, do you think that poetry itself is a contrarian art? Well, there's something to be said about that as maybe a pillar of poetry's energy. I think that there's a lot of contrarian in my feeling that poetry, in my, you know, humble opinion, is about bending, breaking, expanding, exploring, taking us beyond what sort of society deems is possible in language, but humans can discover what is actually possible in language, right? So there has to be a lot of contrarian because much of language uh, 
is generally dictated its value by those who have the most power. But being a human is not about having the most power or control over others. So poetry provides this opportunity for us to break away through language first, to explore and give ourselves ideas that get us out of the conditions that we're in. And the condition that you were in was uh, being this budding poet in, uh, in Oklahoma City. How did you get out of there and make your way to New York? Uh, well, I was a pretty hard-headed person. And when I said at 15 I wanted to be a poet, I just kind of set myself to that and began writing as if I had nothing and that everyone in New York had everything. And if I was to have an opportunity to consider myself a poet among them, I'd have to dig deep and work hard. So I wrote every day for like four hours a night. I would go to the open mic in Northwest Oklahoma City, Medina's Coffee House, y'all, uh, once a <laughs> week on Wednesdays. Um, before that, I used to go to New Orleans Cafe, but they, they stopped their open mic kind of like early on. And then so it was Medina's. But anyway... And then I told my mom, uh, I will not go to college unless I can go to college in New York for writing, which is pretty entitled and privileged of me. But it was a means to sort of really set my foot down on this idea of what type of education I thought would be best for who I am. What was the reaction there at Medina to your poems? What were your poems like? Uh, back then... Uh, you know, I grew up watching a lot of comedy with my father and my sisters. We would watch Saturday Night Live every Saturday and HBO Comedy Hour and cable basically raised me when uh, my parents were working. So a lot of those poems were strictly uh, going to the humor to disguise the pain, uh, for lack of a better way to, you know, compress that to a sentence. So for myself, I was just able at a very early age to elicit a vocal reaction from the audience, which would give me a sense of, oh, this is affirming my poem, because that type of recognition gave me a sort of confidence that I was on the right track to be able to really hear that from the audience. So I'm assuming you did get into a, a college here in New York then? Oh, I did. I got into uh, the dramatic writing program at NYU. And you were on your way. Yeah, it was a start. <laughs> and, uh, and and that brings us into your wandering into the uh, into the New Yorican. Did you find that the poetry slam was, you know, well, how did you, what did it feel like to walk in and see the poetry slams there? Yeah, I would say the first slams were a mix of complete and total reverence for the space, the history, the culture, the environment, uh, being so starved for poetry at an era where we didn't even have Barnes and Noble yet, but we just had mall bookstores like Walden Books and B. Dalton's. Uh, you know, I had this complete and total reverence for the New Yorkian, and at the same time, uh, due to my arrogance, uh, I felt that the poetry I expected to face was not at the level that I had thought. But at the same time, I would like to say that back then, I didn't know what to look for when it came to valuing language and its purpose and culture. And so in many ways, I was uh, unable to receive how 
how amazing some of those poems were in my judgment and my conditioning, right? Because my education in poetry up to that point had conditioned me into a very narrow lens of what is good poetry, quote unquote. It's, you know, it sounds like when you're talking that you're almost in competition with these other poets. And of course, the poetry slam is in a way a mock Olympics for poetry where the uh, judges rank the poems as if they were a blind dates to an SAT exam, you know, 9.2, 8.6, and it's a 10. Um, so how did you, how did your career go in that athletic m metaphor of, uh, of the poetry slams? Sure. Based on the era that I arrived in poetry slam, based on the type of material I presented and the city I shared that in, uh, I had a very quick ascent in the world of poetry slam, especially uh, when I learned how long others had worked at their craft and worked at trying to get to say the national poetry slam or winning a national poetry slam championship. So uh, the moment I began slamming, right? Wednesday night open mic, Keith Roach, uh, won that the first time I uh, signed up for it. Then the first time I met you was that Friday night that I got to slam and uh, because I won the Wednesday and then uh, I won that one. Then I won the semifinal and then I hadn't lost a slam until, you know, me and Saul and Jessica and Mums were in the finals that year, right? So it was very quick and that was probably a span of like maybe six months that that all occurred. Um, shortly after I moved to New York. Yeah, well, I think that's uh, well, a hallmark of slam, you know, that uh, breaking into poetry world has always been like a, 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 a you know, a, a prodigious uh, Sisyphean kind of, uh, uh, of, of progress, if, there is, if you call it that. I, you know, it used to be that the Yale Younger Poets Prize would go to a poet who was under 40, that was a younger poet, under 40. So, uh, you know, that the New Eurekan, a younger poet, is 15 years old. Um, and also at the uh, New Eurekan, you could, within a span of six months, get yourself pretty well known out there and advance into the slam. It depends completely on the audience who were influencing the judges, um, who gave those ridiculous scores. And then you find yourself on stage with um, Saul Williams... Jessica Care Moore and Mums the Schemer in a very historic uh, Grand Slam finale at the New Eurekan, the one where Mark Levin saw these poets and got the idea for the movie Slam. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's pretty much correct. <laughs> and of course, it's also the uh, was the nexus of the team that uh, went on to uh, to be the team that uh, was at the National Poetry Slams. Um, I, all this stuff must sound totally crazy to a poetry audience who hasn't been uh, involved with the poetry slams. Are you still involved with the poetry slams? Uh, it's been a long time since I've agreed to be in a poetry slam. I think the last poetry slam I did was maybe close to 10 years ago for like charity or something, like a, not an actual competition. But probably the last time I really was... Uh, you know, back then, right, trying to be on a national slam team, maybe early 2000s sometime. Right. 
Of course, there are no national poetry slams anymore. What do you what, what do you think happened to the slam movement? Oh, well, I think that you know, it's the slam movement is centralized in America and I think we might not have had the tools and the language and the understanding of our place in that and how America could influence the slam to move from the poetry part and then get killed by the um, commodification part. And I, I think that slam should have, uh, not should have, I would have liked for slam to evolve itself intentionally, but because it did not, poetry has evolved without it. Well, you know, in, in fact, uh, poetry slams around the world are still uh, the sine qua known of poetry, spoken word poetry out there. You know, Estonia and Hungary. Hungary has a, a great slam scene. The only thing that we've got going up against the, uh, the tyrannical government there, Oban. And, uh, you know, it's, it's wild how that is happening. But I do see the commodification, for example... There, uh, next thing you know, you're on television. You're on Deaf Poetry Jam. How was that? Yeah. yeah well, what wait, was that what, like? What did you say? Well, what was it like? What uh, was it like, Bo? Oh, I mean, it was, I mean, A, it was very fast. It was a blur, right? Because you're with, uh, you know, it's funded by HBO. So it's, you know, working through a TV lens and a production lens, which is a very different way to approach poetry at that scale. Right. And I didn't know about that influence on our behavior, our interaction and our work. But one thing that was, you know, a couple of things that were really mind blowing for me was being exposed to a nation of voices that because there were no scores, it started opening me up to the value of these poems to other people who lived lives that I'd never lived, who were trying to show me something I'd yet to understand. Uh, second, I felt like as a vehicle, uh, deaf poetry allowed me to sort of convince and show people who did not know that poems were within them that they didn't have to be a poet to express who they are, what they're going through, or to write poems. And of course, third, uh, because it existed at the time in the, you know, in this hip hop environment of New York and, and being with the Def Jam branding and everything, it exposed this sort of bridge in a more literal, visceral way between hip-hop and poetry and how they are hand-in-hand hand building each other throughout time. Right. They're both examples of the oral tradition. And in fact, uh, there was a series that came out of the Neorican and through the uh, Mouth Almighty records. It was called uh, Rap Meets Poetry. That was at Time Cafe and SOBs and was uh, also had a you know, an intent to, you know, was, was part of the popularization of it and the crossover of it. And Russell Simmons um, of Def Jam saw this connection and was able to parlay it not only into the TV show, and you were on every season. Is that Correct. right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Was, who else was on every season? Hmm. The every season group. So the every season group is probably, and I'm just off the dome here, right? So the every season group is probably me, Suhair Hamad, uh, Lemon Anderson, 
Mighty Del Valle, Black Ice, uh, Georgia Me, uh, Stacy and Chin, uh, Steve Coleman. I think that might be the maybe That's a Sheehan. pretty good list. Maybe it's maybe. Sheehan. Maybe Sheehan okay. too. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure if poetry the poet was in season one or not. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. Wow, you're pretty good. Yeah, we gotta see. We gotta go to uh, the Bartlett's uh, companion to poetry <laughs> to find that out. Um, so uh, that was, uh, you know, that led to to the Broadway show. Yeah, um, and I think many of the poets that you just named were on the Broadway show. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. That led to what would happen if we got to see more than one poem from these poets in a night. And then we did our tester for that at the Aspen Comedy Festival with about five of us. Are you and kidding that me? It was the Comedy Festival was where it got the tryout. Yeah, that's where we tested out this idea of what if each poet had a, like a mini arc of poems in a night and we shared the stage together, right? And that's kind of where... Uh, it was seen, and that's where HBO picked it up, I believe. Well, HBO picked it up for the uh, for the TV show. Mm -hmm. No, oh, no, for bad. the for for, for, broad, for Broadway. Bad. You're correct, and that's when yeah. it went to Broadway from that. That's correct. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, and Russell pulled pulled it off there. And who was the director? Uh, Stan Lathan. Stan Lathan, right? Yeah. Great, great, great. Big job. Stan. Yes. So um, all of a sudden, poets are on Broadway. I think the only time before that that I can recall is in Tazaki Shange's uh, choreo poem for colored girls uh, who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. uh, so what was the trip to Broadway like and on Broadway? Well, you know, as poets, right, you're in your room by yourself all the time writing poems and you get on stage and share your poems by yourself. You know, if you, if you're lucky enough, you get to do an hour on stage and share your whole set and things. Uh, when we were developing the Broadway show, we had to all learn how to like work together. And we had to learn to recognize that our poems and our tones were in this shared experience. So not all of us had to have the same kind of love poem or, same kind of justice poem that one speaks for all of us and much of the work in developing the show in San Francisco and that run before we went to Broadway was about understanding this idea that we are you know vastly different powerful voices but we all contribute to the same shared goals of poetry and moving the world through our language right and we were just working on that. And then beyond that, there's always, obviously, in collaboration in theater, the technical that many of us, uh, including myself, had to learn. Things that, as a poet, just do not come into your mind unless you're kind of being produced through theater, right? Whether that's lighting, blocking, timing, because the lighting and blocking has to be off of a timing. Uh, as you know me, Bob... I can do a poem in an operatic voice. I can do a poem very fast. I could do the same poem very different ways. But once we were making this show, we had to hit our marks over and over again within like, you know, a second or two of whatever it was, you know. Right. Yeah. A different, a, a different place for poetry there on Broadway. Um, what did 
uh, this exposure do for spoken word? Do you call this spoken word sometimes uh, for spoken word for this kind of poetry and for yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think, as you know, this, you know, coming up in the eras when all these terms were kind of uh, more used in the culture by those in these groups of poets, I am not really attached to any of those terms, but I definitely at times will use a term for the sake of another's understanding based on where their relationship is with language and definition. Overall, my personal feeling is that it's all poetry. It all plays to try to figure out what's the most sellable branding of an aspect of poetry is hard for me to hold firm to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I would say that you know, what this does for the ability of sharing poetry on stage, performing poetry, revealing yourself through the oral tradition on stage. I would say that the Broadway show, uh, because it's on Broadway, also created that uh, international, uh, not created, helped nurture the international uh, spoken word tradition, oral poetry to tradition, because of the, so many people from around the world coming to see the show. And then also mm-hmm. so many young folks who have little or no access now have a much more accessible avenue to that poetry because from that show, right, we were able to bring in a lot of youth groups throughout our run. We were able to put poetry in schools more and we were able to uh, utilize the folks from the show to help strengthen poetry in other cities in the country. Well, that's great. That's uh but how about uh, nationwide for spoken word, this kind of poetry as an art? Uh, you know, did it, did that exposure go? I mean, it's the, this is something that poetry does. It does. It's it, it's 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 hand to hand. It's it's person to person. It's very live and it's with single voice and not committeeized in any way. It's 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 singular in mm-hmm. it's in 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 the way that it's presented, and that gives strength to, to youth groups and still these wonderful um, youth groups like uh, Urban Word and Louder Than a Bomb and Youth Speaks. You know, mm-hmm. are are remarkable places for the education of a of a young person you know um i'm talking also about though the way that it came out as you know as an art form you know it's uh and and what and what kind that exposure do you think what did you know right i see i would say this like because the way we condition english in america uh, it's difficult you know, many people can feel removed from writing and structuring their thoughts through writing. But on every level, people uh, grow up in the world learning how to express themselves through voice. And so because we did that show, because we did the HBO show, and because it was at the same time that those youth groups you were mentioning were building themselves in the cities they were in, nationwide, it sort of created this permission for a new avenue that wasn't as, right? Because this is pre-social media, this era. And uh, where were people going to go who were young that didn't have a place to really say what was going on with them? Uh, where were they going to go where they didn't have to spend a lot of money or get permission to be able to be on stage? You know, it's poetry slams being open and open mics being open and getting on stage 
being among your community that gives you that sense of connection, that ability to share and then feel received for what you share. That type of experience, we as a country were hungering for more of that. Right. And so this became a place for that hunger to go to. And that's why the emergence of so many voices post, you know, I say like 2004 and on, like there is just exponential growth in younger and younger groups of folks with their relationship to poetry and spoken word, because it not only spoke to them, it gave them a chance to speak to the world unhindered, unfiltered, and received as they are. And uh, let's just go there and say that it's uh, exemplified by Amanda Gorman speaking at the inauguration, sort of the, you know, the culmination of years and years of, uh, of poets hanging out at open mics and doing the poetry slams, you know, building up these community groups, and uh, which is where I think that... Uh, Dr. Biden uh, first heard Amanda, and of course she was the first uh, youth poet laureate. I mean, just the idea that there's a youth poet laureate is something that uh, was unfathomable until uh, until recently. Um, and there is Amanda, I think, changing the world. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, to have poetry... Uh, expanding how people think a language at that level in that context is so valuable because it is in that arena and aspect of our society that we need more expansion and we need more uh, growth. We need more understanding. And poetry helps bridge that for many who feel removed, disconnected from participating in how to build society, right? Um, right. Yeah, yeah, it's democracy very in action. Amanda yep. Gorman being out there in the world. Yeah. And it is a symbolic reflection of why poetry is so needed today and why it is so important that we allow young people to not be dictated to regarding poetry, but to uh, welcome whatever they discover through their relationship with poetry. Well said. Well played. As oh, thank your you. Your latest book says, um, "In in your life, after Broadway, you, is that when you moved to Los Angeles?" Uh, after Broadway is when Norman uh, brought me on for the Declaration of Independence tour, and that is kind of around when I moved to Los Angeles to build that show with the other poets. So Norman Lear, um, late lamented. Um, is uh, had bought a copy, is that right, at yeah. auction? An actual copy of the yeah. Declaration of Independence? People aren't going to believe this yeah. story. So yeah, yeah he bought the copy tell that him. was found in the painting, I think, that one. Oh, Remember wow. that one? And Because it's like one of 25 in the world or something, and that was like one of the few you could actually buy privately because the others belong to institutions, you know? Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. He bought it and he said, I want to, uh, you know, once again, I wanted to bridge people to what I feel in this document. I want to help people be inspired and feel connected to what this document is saying and what this document says is possible. And originally, 
he had been thinking about uh, this idea of a traveling preacher conveying these ideas and thoughts and stuff. But he was actually at Aspen when we performed there. And that's kind of when he started getting this other idea. And so he put together a group of poets to construct a poetry show, spoken word show, right? Whatever we're going to call it today. And uh, we just built that out so we could tour with the Declaration and other educational tools. So give us an example of what a show would look like for the poetry. The poets bring you the Declaration of Independence. Well, you know, it, it was such a large-scale affair. I mean, he's such a legendary television producer, so this was also very well-produced. So it's, you know, kind of like going on site, constructing an environment around the Declaration, where the Declaration is a very high-profile area, then sort of sharing other civic engagement tools on that site, then having a stage area. And depending on the context of the event, uh, granted, everything we wrote was had to be nonpartisan, which was quite a exploration in language in and of itself mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we'd get there, six of us, right? And we had a DJ. And essentially a show could be anywhere between, you know, five minutes and 40 minutes because we had to be almost like uh what is that when you're like uh in a way somewhat prefabricated like you could arrange the pieces however you needed to to build what you needed right um and we generally uh focused on topics of civic engagement uh motivating people to take their own action and agency and uh we really targeted uh, a youth demographic during that time. Right. Oh, that sounds just so exciting. We need it now. We need it now. You know, I'm working on a project called All the Voices, um, an anthology that wants to have poetry across the political spectrum in it, but it's awful hard to get conservative voices. I mean, I'm, I'm remembering back when the, the Poets Against the War said that... Uh, Poets against the war is as obvious as saying generals for the war. Um, it just seems that there's, but at any rate, that if if all you conservatives out there, please send your poems into uh, poetry at citylore.org so that we can have a, the spectrum of, of U.S. poetics in there. I mean, we do want everybody to speak out and not be out there shooting each other. I find that interesting because I, I don't know. I'm taking that in, and there is a truth to that where uh, I, in my lifetime, have not witnessed many poets on stage who identify themselves as conservative. But I do have met a lot of poets who have deeply conservative values but see themselves not as conservative. You know? So I'm interested to see how that unfolds. Yeah, good, good, good insight there. I like two, 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 two. Yeah. Um, how about when you did your uh, your your poem, your first book about Jewel? Um, you sort of took a radical stance in that one. Sure. I mean, you know, looking back, I don't know if I would have done it again, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Because looking back, uh, 
I think I didn't need to do that. Yeah, well, what you did was you took every title of her of her uh, of her of poems in her book and wrote your own poems instead, just yeah. using her titles as guidelines. It just yeah. was a crazy idea, Bob. But I wasn't trying to publish that book. If you remember, like for me, I was really broke, and I was hosting a poetry slam, and I didn't have a cash prize for the poetry slam, so I went to Barnes and Noble. And I wrote down all the titles and read her book. Then I went home and wrote like a really, because I wasn't trying to write no great book. I just wrote a book in four hours off of her titles. That's why all the poems are like five (laughs) lines, seven lines long, right? And then I did brought it to the slam as the prize. And this was like the one slam that, you know, Bill Adler happened to be at. And he was like, oh, have you thought of publishing this? And I was like, no. I want to do that. And so he he published it, right? That's and of great. course, at the time, I was so hungry and desperate for, I wasn't aware of this, but I was so hungry and desperate for attention, uh, recognition, acknowledgement, you know, bullet points, whatever you want to call it, that I was like, oh, yeah, totally. That would be great. <laughs> and that's how that well, went. That's how that went. Yeah. Next thing you know, so what was it that drew you to Los Angeles? Uh, you know, I was still really living in my fear. So I would say that several factors. One, uh, a breakup that made it very hard for me to face, I guess, quote, New York. You know, all the memories, that whole memory thing was just impacting me very greatly at the time. And second, uh, because of deaf poetry and the ongoing uh, connection to deaf poetry, I just started feeling like, I was just an extension of a brand, not myself anymore. And because I would see, you know, obviously we did the Broadway shows. There's all this New York stuff around us. This deaf poetry, deaf poetry, you know. And then the third was I had this agent who told me I couldn't get any work unless I moved to L.A. And then probably Norman bringing me on. Like that combination led to that decision being more than uh, just the declaration gig and you did wind up being in movies out in la i did through poetry (laughs) so like that's the thing you saw me in those jonathan demi movies but i i don't know if you know this but the only reason why i'm in these movies is because uh norman asked me to perform a poem i'd written for him and for the declaration of independence show called kill the old at his 80th birthday, right? Now, wait a minute. I, I do know that poem, but are you telling me that uh, that Norman had wanted that title, Kill the Old? Yeah, so it was or like, was I'm having you? an 80th birthday party, and I would really appreciate it if you came and performed the poem, Kill the Old, at this party. <laughs> because the and, story I heard was that the whole audience was shocked when you came up with this uh this uh, idea oh no carl reiner was in on it so basically the setup was we're gonna make it seem like i broke into the event and then as i end we hand the mic to carl reiner carl reiner stands up and he gives me a talking to and that's kind of like the button on that little performance moment right um and it gave me like you know the lecture of a lifetime in front of all these people at the Beverly. I think it was like the Beverly Hilton or something. But uh, because I recite this poem, that's how I meet uh, Jonathan, and through that we started working together. 
and you did the Manchurian Candidate. I did. And uh, which is a riff that that's part, you know. Right. We see you doing like a poem in a in a television set behind uh, the action going on there. Yeah. No, he um, he he said, you know, I I have this idea of a guy who's, you know, just just talking it out, you know, stream of consciousness. Could you maybe just stand in front of a camera and do do something like that? Right. And so I'd written a piece beforehand, maybe a few nights before in the hotel, because uh, I was flying from L.A. to New York for this job. And um, then that morning, we just ran the camera for like, I don't know, an hour and just ranted in uh, all these things. Um, how about uh, Rachel getting married? You had a great part in that one. That was probably the I loved working on that more than anything ever in film and TV because that whole that whole project was a phone call of Bo, I think I have a role for you in this, but it's not in the script. Could do you feel like comfortable to come out here for two months and improvise your role as a layering to the script? And I was just like, this is perfect. Uh, and I loved wow. it. You know, I loved like the level of creativity and his mastery of being able to layer the non-scripted on top of the scripted at the same time as we were shooting. It was just phenomenal. Wow. Such you make mastery. it sound like real art there making this movie. Mm -hmm. It was living. It was vibrant. The, yeah. The grips moving the lights around and everybody has to check for sound and the stops and starts and where is life and here comes the poet you know you were no, sort we of the mc like, of the no in that project we would do like only one or two takes of a scene but that take would be like 20 minutes and eight cameras moving around us <laughs> you know like it was a phenomenal experience well that's um, Rachel getting married with Bosia as the wedding MC and a great film to check out to see a poet working out on film. At the same time in L.A., you were also starting to create your own martial art. Well, um, definitely right? developing a new relationship with martial arts that's less physical and more emotional, for sure. Okay. And uh, so then maybe you can just segue that into why you decided to have, why there were knives involved in this martial art, oh. um, real and metaphorical, I assume. Sure. Uh, well, you know, I'll talk about like the, the personal, but you know, it's like any type of martial art that you do for a long time, like you have eras in your relationship as it develops with it. So for me at the beginning, it was literally uh, the guy, Johnny, that I was seeing for my uh, recovery from my ACL and stuff. Do you want to go back to the accident and just talk about this that? This is even before the accident, here? actually. Because I was already oh. seeing Johnny before the accident, the car accident. And, and then the accident happened shortly after I kind of started picking up knives from him. But essentially how this began was uh, Johnny uh, showing me or revealing to me the level of terror I walk in while pretending that I don't. And he did that by drawing a knife on me in a session. And that visceral response my body had, in a way, unlocked a curiosity 
of what is this fear? What is this terror? How is this influencing my behavior, my choices, how I protect myself, how I don't? And in the process of him teaching me some really basic, authentic mechanics on being effective and impactful with edge weapons, I started recognizing all of the emotional aspects of what I was doing and its connection to other areas of my life. And that's when I really became passionate about it, that, you know, once again, this is how, you know, we have these conversations about poetry. I always approach this like poetry. What is the metaphor here? What is it showing me that I'm unwilling or that I don't feel like I have permissions to make this choice? Or I always go to that particular choice, right? When I'm in an engagement with another organic being. So that is what really kept me really into evolving, developing, understanding what it is not just to be able to uh, sort of, what, 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 how would I call it? Uh, not isolate. Anyway, just, you know, just my ability to like take someone down was not the, the thing. My thing was not to become more violent. My thing was to understand how fear moves us. It was to understand how expectation kills us. It was to be clear about what intention actually needs to be responsible to, right? It was like It that. sounds like a poet approaching this, uh, the edge. Well, you know, I just, I find that edge weapons are such a ancient thing. They are the saber-toothed tiger claw. They are the tusk of this mammoth. They are, you know, edges, points, they, they're deep in our history, in our fear. And when you hold one in your hand, that all history comes to life. Well, that's my okay. opinion everyone okay. I, just, I, I, I don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> okay okay well that's good but i'm so glad that you don't because you can that allows you to teach it as well right uh, well i do don't like helping people uh be able to uh show up for themselves under extreme duress which is how i see it in general because i i never want to and never have had to thankfully knock on wood had to draw and I don't teach people that that's where they go to, but what I teach them helps them in other areas of life for sure. And I, I love that the most, like people feeling like they have permission to protect themselves in life is, is a huge thing. Like it's a huge value for me. Do you have a name for this bow or is it just? Nah, because, know, uh, okay. It's weird because I, I've often, you know, throughout the years, people have asked me, like, you know, make it a workshop, make it a system. What is the defining elements of the system? What makes it different from FMA, PTK, you know, and I'm like, hmm, I don't know, because everyone, as I've learned that I've taught, is individual. And everyone's relationship with certain aspects of violence is different due to their experiences and how they were taught violence. So you just the way I like to share this knowledge, right? It's got to be very customized. It cannot be hindered by a system, in my opinion, you know? Yeah, we're going straight back to the your uh, Chinese parents immigrating from the Philippines resulting in a trip to Oklahoma City. Yeah. You know, the, the whole thing has to be laid out there. Help me with, with my uh, acronyms, FMA and PTK. Oh. 
Sorry. It's all good. Yeah, that's the thing. I forget that everything has its own language, right? <laughs> so FMA is Filipino martial arts. Uh, PTK is uh, Pikiti Tertia Kali, uh, which is like a form of FMA that is very uh, popular and well-known out here in the West. Although the tribes of the Philippines have many forms of Filipino martial arts. like As well countless. as many languages. Countless. You know. right. Yeah. Thousand Islands. It's amazing. Wow. So, uh, so, so, Bo, um, we we touched briefly on your uh, on the car accident. Oh yeah. Can you, and I thought that that really played into the evolution of this whatever you call this. Yeah. No, it did. Martial art. Um, do you want to talk about that? No, it truly did because my car accident was cognitive primarily because of my brainstem in my neck and. We weren't sure, you know, because that's what, <laughs> to my not to my knowledge, almost every like neurologist brain person's like, well, we actually don't know how well you get or or when or how did you even get well, you know, and you just got to find your own way. But here's some guidelines. And the thing about edge weapons is, due to the level of fine motor engagement in the hand to carry and utilize one, uh, I used. Uh, I use myself with knife actually to develop my brain more, especially cross hemispherical work, meaning going left to right hemisphere. Right, right. Um, right. I use it to develop. Um, you know, one of the things because of my injury, I was more impacted by stress than ever to where it would actually impact function in a way that was really clear and recognizable. The ability to remain calm under stress is how I was able to eventually reclaim much of my function. Like definitely, but also age is different, right? So definitely some of my cognitive endurance is from age, but also some of it is from this accident. So using edge weapons developed cross-hemispherical work, uh, kept me calm under duress, which kept my channels way more open, my functioning much higher. It also gave me a sense of discipline and structure that my earlier artist life didn't possess that allowed me to do all of the things uh, to recover the way I did because it was a long, elaborate recovery that was nonlinear. And because of that, and because of the level of function I was seeking to reclaim, I wasn't seeking to just be able to answer emails. I was seeking to be as functional as I was before the accident. And that sort of dynamic movement, that uh, level of uh, mental engagement uh, really required discipline, preparation, and structure that working with edge weapons helped me uh, develop. Right, and I see it leading all the way to um, some new poetry from you. Um, mm -hmm. the, the healing poems that you've been placing up on Instagram, mm -hmm. uh, you, your own handwriting. Mm -hmm. um, is that, am, I, am I on the right track here? Oh, for sure, because you know, we always talk about what poetry can be for. I mean, you helped me open doors about what poets can be besides, hey, see how great of a poet I am? And uh, so one of those ways was, hey, I'm not really resonating with other people's uh, healing language. I need language for myself, intentions that are customized to me, that sort of harness that energy in a way that really coded to, to what I need. And 
those phrases, the reason why they're handwritten, and this is back to brain engagement, fine motor, uh, I believe that writing by hand uh, increases the the potency of what I'm trying to convey and connect to within myself. I just really have experienced that enough in my life that I believe that, right? And um, every time I crafted one of those for Instagram, it was a moment in my life where I have a road here where in my past I've made decades of choices that have left me feeling this way. I have an opportunity to make a new choice. Can I use this language to help me heal, to help me build, to help me understand? So this would be a wonderful chance for us to actually hear some of these poems. You happen to have any of them handy? Oh, well, the ones that are off of Instagram? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, let me just pop, pop that up right now. So Okay, while you're doing you, that, like, let me recently. talk about what so a recently, great artist you are. Let's uh, both talk at the same time. Yeah, perfect. That's great. <laughs> start was now. That as a go, continue. No, go now. <laughs> and then, wait, say words. Any words. And then, oh. All of uh, the... I, you got to come back. Wait, but if we're going to start... I didn't it's this poem. Words. It's not my... I understand so, everything. So on August 5th, I believe... Uh, there was a new moon, I think it was, and I wanted to write some intentions for myself to remember heading into the fall, right? So I normally do about seven of these. Here are my seven intentions for that day. Rest, and look, I am not opposed to using rhymes so that it'll stick in my head. So, rest in ways that bloom your best. Pretty clear. Care for while you can care for free folks from false forever do something so you daily rinse until the water is clear evolve your ships to harness the wind live the knife beyond the edge so those I wanted to write for myself to head me into fall. Each of those I kind of made simple. Uh, for those who really study poetry, you can tell that there's some meter as well as sonics for consonants and stuff to give me a rhythm to help increase my memory. Uh, as we know, memory is not just thought, it is feeling. So I try to also construct these to incite my feeling towards what I am trying to uh, remember intentionally. Well, they're lovely, and may I suggest to our listening audience that you take that segment of the of, of this program and slow it down, listen to each one, hit your uh, space bar so you can stop and meditate on each of those seven uh, healing poems. The first one was actually about remembering poetry and goes into the, the, the basis of orality. Rhyme helps you. Rhyme is mnemonics. Rhyme helps you to remember. That's why rhyme was there for the, uh, the poets who had no writing for that 40,000-year period before writing was invented. There were still poets there at that time. So we're getting to that point where we want to hear some of your poetry. Bo. Cool. You have uh, this new book out, Well Played, the cover of which is your, uh, is your handwriting. Um, and 
you know, for some reason, hearing these wonderful, uh, um, wonderful uh, activities that you're involved in, I'm just wondering why one of the of the beginning poems in this book is called "Has Been." Oh, because um, you know, <laughs> I I went through these years, Bob, where, uh, you know, you know me from those from the beginning to now, and it's like there was those early years where it seemed like, at least in the poetry world, I was like doing every sort of poetry thing that you would want to do as a poet. You know what I mean? Like, do I get to tour and do an hour of my stuff? Yes. Do I get to be on the deaf poetry stuff? Yes. Do I get to win that, et cetera, et cetera, whatever, right? And, but then there's another period of time that's over 10 years where, you know, there's poetry moments that I share with the world, but I'm really consumed in other things that I don't even know why I'm taken in by them or why they're just drawing me and calling me to them. And throughout that time, you know, I would always, I'm not oblivious. I definitely can feel, uh, you know, I definitely know about the capitalism and supremacy, even in the industry of our art form, right? And so I definitely know it's like, oh, I'm not getting free books anymore. I'm clearly not <laughs> like that to other poets, you know, or um, I'm no one's calling me back or people are looking through me or uh, people are actually saying those words. Like I, I just started hearing about myself being a has been. Uh, oh, cause, cause there's always oh, like, let's hear new... the poem. Well, I'm just saying, I'm just telling <laughs> okay. the truth, man. And that's the all thing. right, brother. Well, like, we all have it, don't we? Yeah, yeah. But I think for me, it's like, do I give them that power over me or yeah. do I reclaim it for myself based on what I understand, which is all those things that people had glorified me for in my early days, they did not satisfy or fulfill me to the degree that I had imagined they would. And in actuality, much of what people have not seen from me is what has transformed who I am, right? So here's the poem. <clears throat> has been. Holy shit, it feels good to be a has been. Because you know me. Has been an addict to writing until I'd forgotten my face. Rage until I lost my voice. Regret until I started slow-deathing the future. I has been a son blaming his parents for America. A friend getting got cause never taught boundaries with white people. A partner chasing love to run from everything I don't like about myself. I has been forcing the issue instead of listening to my heart. I has been unaware of anxiety until I comed at the party. I has been insecure to the point of staying on my knees for belonging. Has been the poet who helped white poets feel diverse. Has been the poet who gave passes to white men's verse. Has been the poet hiding worthless at the expense of others through brat expressions of power. Has been the poet who almost kept working with death. Has been the poet who almost got stuck in the beat's bedroom. Has been the poet who almost didn't see the plot twist in the legend's story. I accept whatever fate befalls me, because I has been 
Too hung up on getting mine. Too victimhood as denial tool. Too fuckboy in a love ploy. Who has been so depressed, shutting it out. So depressed, letting it be definitive. So depressed, wondering why my life didn't turn out the way early accolades suggested it would based on all the things I read by colorless poets in the quiet room didn't see that the trophies, the trinkets, and the treats of triumph weren't the only things I has been. Stuck in diminishing returns of celebrated angst was once the dragon sleepwalking through caverns claiming golden. Waking in truth to release this regret, beginning to let go of all the deludes in the standing O. Standing in my own, growing out of all the things I've been that would never fulfill this destiny. Powerful poem, Bo. You know. Thank you. Um, yeah. No, thank you. You know, and I'm sure the audience is out there applauding with their ears, which is fairly difficult to do to bring them <laughs> around either side of your head and and let them flutter and applaud. Um, let's do some more explorations in, uh, in, in Well Played. This is called Don't Be That Guy, who always has a reason for not being racist, who gets so incensed by the call-out, he suddenly lists every non-racist thing he's ever done, who behaves as if, Get over it is something all y'all Papa Johns would do. Who thinks racism is what tenured institutions dissertate it is. Who only sees racism as burning cross. Who believes his lot in life means he could never be. Who has donations, posts, friends, and rallies on hand as a shield from accountability who can't see the nuance of it through tailored threads, who is so afraid of blame he refuses to consider responsibility, who shows up on Halloween shamelessly in blackface, yelling out to the whole room, What's your fucking problem? Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, Bo. <laughs> yeah, well, you're still on that stage, oh, yeah. brother. You know, um, how let's let's pick another one here. What what could it be? You want you got yeah, did it turn you on to read something else, Bo? Oh, you know what? I I do really like this only Asian at the party because let's I love the idea that. of an allegory that seems like a literal. <laughs> Perfectly said. Is it? I think it's the first poem in the book, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Here we go. So it's called "The Only Asian at the Party." Tends to dress unrealistic, arrives before things really get started, laughs while watching the corners of everyone's eyes, holds his drink like they do in Bond movies, has one too many, but not 
too many, knows the exits, bathrooms, and what the signature cocktail is, has creatively explained where he's from three times already, felt a white woman linger on his shoulder too long. He looks good enough to eat, a burst of flavor eager to be washed down. He wants to know where everyone is eating afterwards, but knows you don't ask that here. Reminds someone of Dave, who was like so crazy in college, later gets mistaken for a valet, later overhears some shit about China he walks away from, later puts a memory in his pocket like he accomplished something just by being invited. Isn't captivating enough to be in the movie version. Has a white girlfriend that would have made this night less defensive and more awkward. The only Asian at the bash is a bigger deal to the Asians looking in from the street. He treats their envy in the afterwards as treasure after leaving feeling empty. Isn't remembered by those he met, but everyone keeps saying, Wow, what a colorful event. Bosia. Bosia in... Uh... The only, the only Asian in the room. Uh, how true that is with you out there in Los Angeles and me here on the Bowery with Ram Devanini. Um, it's been an utter joy to uh, have you. And what a great place to end at the first poem in, in your uh, latest book, Well Played. The end is really the beginning. I feel you, man. You got it, Bo. <laughs> Well, you know, um, any beginning words for us to uh, get started on whatever we're doing next? Ah, yeah. I mean, as you move forward in life, all of y'all, remember, keep it personal, keep it profound, keep it cultural. Don't get lost in the details. Expand behind the guidelines. Recognize that now, unlike any other time in history, is an opportune moment to shape not just the future, but the possibility of what humanity is through its reflection of what it is within you. So get to it. Sounds like a good plan, Bo. Um, I've never heard poetry self-help, but uh, <laughs> you have invented uh, another new form. Thank you, Bob. Thank you so much for having me at Poetry is Bread. It's been great to talk to you through the years. Obviously, you and I could talk about everything forever, but I'm so grateful that you allowed me to have this moment with you on this. It's, listen, brother, it's been my pleasure, and it's been all for the poetry. That's it for today. Um, there's always tomorrow. See ya. I'm Bob Holman, and thank you for listening to Poetry is Bread. Subscribe to our podcast to get notifications of new episodes or check us out at BoweryPoetry.com. The podcast is co-produced by Ram Devanini and Flavio Roja with Rataplax. The podcast series is funded by the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund, which is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State with fundings provided by the U.S. government and implemented by Global Ties U.S., in partnership with the Office of Alumni Affairs and the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. 
additional support from New York State Council on the Arts, Governor of New York State Kathy Hochul, and the New York State Legislature. See ya.